dear listeners, and welcome to Defense, the conversation about defense you never knew you always wanted to have. I'm Dr. Alex Valenti, and today is a very special episode because we are going to be discussing the book A Woman of No Importance with the author of the book, Sonia Pinel, and with my resident electronic warfare specialist, Dr. Thomas Withington. A Woman of No Importance is the story of an incredible woman, Virginia Hall, who against all odds became a spy in France during World War II and helped build the resistance network in preparation for D-Day. I say against all odds because not only was she a woman who wanted to enter a man's world in the 30s, when it was particularly difficult, but she was also missing a leg due to a hunting accident in her 20s, which gave her a rather conspicuous limp, which, as you can imagine, would have been quite hard to make her a spy, but yet she succeeded. So this episode is divided into two parts. In the first part, Sonia patiently answers all our questions about her research for the book, about the life of Virginia Hall and her achievements. In the second part, where we discuss Virginia's years as a radio transmitter for the Resistance, Sonia gets to ask Tom all her questions about radio transmissions and detection back then and today. So without further ado, I would like to welcome our very special guest today, Sonia. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hello, good to be here. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you here on the podcast. I have to say I am slightly nervous. I never uh, interviewed an author before and certainly not an author of a book I really enjoyed. So I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you very much. Honestly, it's really, really good. I love talking about the story and particularly with an expert like Tom, I feel very, very privileged. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, Tom, we're going to be grilling you about electronic warfare and a whole lot of questions about how, you know, transmitting messages during resistance. So I hope you're ready. Lucky me. No, I'm very much looking forward to it. And uh, Sonia, as we said in the just before we started the recording just now, um, I thoroughly enjoyed the book and and learned a huge amount as well. Um, and I always think any book that you enjoy and learn from is pretty much a perfect work. So um it kept me enthralled and entertained for the, for the hours that I digested it. And um, so thank you once again for, for the contribution that you made, not only um, to the historiography, but for sharing this amazing story as well. Um, so maybe before we start digging into the book, we should uh, give our audience a sense of what we're talking about here. So the book is in a very small nutshell, um, about Virginia Hall, which was, she was American, but she led a very interesting life. And that's what we're going to be digging into today. She first, she really wanted to be part of um, the efforts in the Second World War. She wanted to be part of the diplomatic corps, if I remember correctly. And but she never managed in the US and she found her way into the Second World War via the UK. Is that right, Sonia? Am I, am I doing it justice? You certainly are. She did try to join the State Department as, as a diplomat. She took the exam several times. She passed. Um, but you know, this is way back in the uh, 20s and 30s, and they simply didn't really want a woman in the diplomatic corps, and they found all sorts of excuses, including one which was that they didn't um, hire amputees. And she was an amputee because she had lost a leg in a hunting accident at, at, 20, at the age of 27. Um, but she, you know, I think 
I, I thought a lot about what happened to her then. And I think in a way, without making it sound, without being too simplistic, what happened to her, this awful kind of thing that happened in her life, that moment of carelessness that cost her so much is probably partly what made her a, the great agent, secret agent that she became. But in, in the short term, it was an excuse for the State Department not to employ her as a diplomat. They said there was some obscure rule barring amputees. But then I was, I was giving a lecture in, in Boston about Virginia one day and this very nice guy came up to me at the end and he said you know um my my father my grandfather sorry lost a leg um in the first world war and he joined the state department around that time as a diplomat so i i think we know what was going on here <clears throat> they they didn't want a, a woman and, and they didn't want virginia and that was a convenient excuse and so she did find herself rejected and like I say, I mean, you know, she made something out of her adversity um, and she became a very, very resilient and determined woman. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, it's it's a, it's an interesting story because she did that to herself. It was an accident. She shot herself in the leg. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she literally shot herself in the foot. You know, she was out hunting. She tripped. She reached for her gun. She hadn't engaged the safety catch. And she shot herself in the foot at point-blank range. Um, initially, it seemed it was going to be okay, but then an infection set in. Of course, they didn't have antibiotics back then. Gangrene kind of took hold of her leg, and the only way of, of, of saving her was by amputating the leg, fortunately below the knee. But um, having spent some time, as I did, in, in, in talking to her, can you believe this? There is someone who's expert in the history of prosthetics in the Science Museum here in London. And I, I had a sort of conversation with this guy, and, and he was describing to me in great detail how prosthetics worked back then, and they're nothing like the amazing things that you see now. I mean, it was pretty much like Long John Silver in Treasure Island. I mean, it was a, it was a sort of a piece of wood, uh, moulded into the shape of a leg, but you couldn't flex your ankle. Um, it was it was heavy. It was held on by leather straps that sort of dug into your flesh, and when it was hot, it would, um, they would, you know, rub your skin raw. So from that day onwards, even when the wounds. Um, Heal, which they took a very, very long time to do, she was always in pain. I mean, always in pain. So her story of what she ends up doing is even more remarkable when she had all of this going on and going up and down steps or hills or slopes was excruciating and very difficult. So when you think what she ends up doing, I mean, really quite incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think it's it's particularly interesting. I mean, if we haven't, you know, for the audience, we haven't been talking about this leg for nothing, because what happened is that via the UK, she then went to France uh, to be to start helping build the uh, resistance network that would eventually help win the war. And she was a spy. And when you as you so well described, Sonia. When you when you have a, a wooden leg that you can't flex your ankle, you can't walk, you can't have a normal walk. So it's a very distinctive feature to have for someone who is supposed to blend in and not be noticed by well the Gestapo at the time. I mean that that's a very good point. And she did become, despite all her best efforts, she became known as the limping lady. And the Gestapo were after this limping lady. And of course, if they ever found a woman with a, a wooden leg, they would know immediately who she was. She tried to take really long strides to try and disguise this this limp. 
but really it, it was pretty important it was impossible to disguise it completely I mean she could do most things by the way she could ride a bike she could ride um, a horse she could even ski in a certain way what, what she couldn't do which is kind of quite useful when you're a secret agent operating behind enemy lines she couldn't run that's one thing she couldn't do um so she was conspicuous and she wasn't able to run. So, you know, she started with these disadvantages, um, but that wasn't going to hold her back. No, and it definitely didn't, uh, because whilst she was that, that first stint, which I think was about two years long, if I'm not mistaken, two or three years in France, she built already an amazing network. I mean, she created, she, she built these connections with, just about everyone. She was in Lyon at the beginning, or for most of it, I think. She was in Lyon, where the heart of the resistance was at the beginning. And she, she built connections with everyone around her, with a madame, if I remember correctly, and with the uh, with her with her women who were also getting information from the Gestapo. So she had this, despite this 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 limp that made her very conspicuous, she had this incredible ability uh, of of building connections and, and creating a network of allies around her that then served her really well for the rest of the war and, and for helping the war effort. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting as to, you know, how personality fits into this. I mean, what was it about her, for instance, that the brothel madam, all the women who work for her, their doctor, police officers, railway uh, workers, um, people working in the town hall, businessmen, were all prepared to risk their lives, the risk that risk the lives of their families, their neighbours, their friends, everyone, to work for her and to help, you know, kind of kickstart the resistance. There was something, even though they didn't know her real name, they didn't um, know where she was from, um, she was very, very sort of secretive about herself, uh, gave very little of herself away, and yet there was something about her that made them take this decision, okay, we're going to take the orders from this foreign woman from nowhere and we're going to start creating these cells, these networks for the day when she says the Brits and the Americans will one day come back. We've just got to take her at her word and kind of get ready for that now. So she went in almost two years to the day after the war had, had started. She went in into Vichy, France in September 41. I mean, the interesting thing is, not just interesting, I mean, it, astonishing again, so many astonishing things about this story is that there was very little training because no one had kind of done this stuff before no one had really gone into enemy um, territory and tried to set up a, a a whole network so she was kind of making it up as she went along and it's interesting I spent a day at the CIA and they said that uh, where she went to work after the war that they still use some of the techniques that she pioneered back in the 40s so she kind of she invented really? It. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, invented it in the field because she went, as I say, with virtually no training because no one knew what it was that she was going to be doing exactly. There were no, there was no reception committee. There was no one there to help her. She really had to do it right f from the start by herself. Wow, that's that's incredible to think that. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible and it isn't when you read the book. She was so smart and so cunning in the in the right in the good sense of the word that I'm not surprised that they're still using some of this. But I think what's also very interesting is that um, then I think after 
a few years, after a couple of years, she was burnt as a spy as part of the UK network. And she had to flee via Spain. And then, she, of course, she was helped by all these people that she that she had recruited. And, and as you mentioned, I'm thinking about this because you mentioned that people were taking orders from her because I then remember that she went back to the UK and then somehow went back into France because she really wanted to keep going with this with the work that she was doing and she really wanted to protect also all the people that she um that she had recruited and I think that's also what made her so um so good at what she was doing because people knew they could trust her I mean you know she was trusting people but people knew she could they could trust her they could trust her to save them and and she comes back with the American efforts this time around as an American spy, right? That's part of OSS. And she continues. And this time around, this is when she starts, she takes on the role of radioing messages to the resistance back to England. And she takes on this whole new role. Um, And in fact, uh, when she moves eventually, she doesn't go back to Lyon necessarily, but she moves to the mountains. uh, In fact, near where my parents live in in Southwest France. And she becomes the, uh, the Madonna of the mountains. And she's, she basically becomes a commander, but she doesn't have that recognition, right? No, I mean, it was always very difficult for her. She was never given an official um, formal military rank. So it was always difficult with certain people to um, persuade them to accept her orders. Again, they didn't know who, exactly who she was. She wasn't from any kind of conventional operation. She was very secretive about the organization that she was actually part of. And you're right to say that she did go back um, this time under sort of the American umbrella, but really because, well, two two reasons really. I mean, the Brits said, look, you are burned. You managed to escape over the Pyrenees with your leg that you call Cuthbert. It's extraordinary. Uh, it's a, you know, it's an astonishing thing all by itself that you managed to escape with the Gestapo in pursuit. Uh, over the mountains in some of the worst snows for 200 years. But we're not going to send you back because the Gestapo know everything about you now. But the Americans said, yeah, we're going to send you back, but we're going to disguise you as a French peasant. So she had her teeth ground down to look like, um, you know, sort of a country woman's teeth and um, dyed her hair, had uh, Hollywood makeup artists show her how to draw wrinkles on her face, this kind of thing. She still has the limp, of course, so this is still... An issue, but she goes back and with really the sort of her own kind of intuition and a small guidebook um, becomes a, a commander, a, a partisan's commander in, in the resistance. And she becomes known as the Madonna of the Mountains because these are guys who've been fighting the Germans with kitchen knives and broom handles. You know, they literally had nothing. Often they didn't even have shoes. Um, and she says to them, Okay, I can actually organize um, parachute drops of guns, ammunition, um, explosives, uh, shoes, uniforms, um, whatever you need, I can I can bring. And initially they thought, yeah, right. Okay, why should we believe you? But she was this radio operator. She had by now um, paid herself, by the way, to train up as a radio operator. She is able to get messages back to London. And then she organises some 22 parachute drops in the Haute Loire, which is the mountain area that she becomes the commander in. And the first night, I remember going up to this plateau where the the parachute drops took place. The first night, they were quite late because you never knew when the, the... the planes were going to get through and you know the tension all these 
oh, he's waiting there. And is this woman a complete phony? I think her life was literally at stake. You know, if those planes hadn't arrived that night, they might well have thought she was a, you know, a spy for the wrong side. And then they finally do arrive. And then she's called the Madonna of the Mountains because she can work miracles. You know, she got these, these planes arrive and all this stuff comes out in these canisters and lands and they rip the canisters open and, and suddenly, you know, the fight is very, very different from then on. Um, not to say that it was easy, it certainly wasn't, but uh, she completely changed the course of fighting in that part of France and in certain other parts as well. Yeah, absolutely. And towards the end, I mean, this is already, we're talking, we're, we're 43, 44, in fact, and uh, having all these uh, weapons dropped in is basically uh, getting ready for when the Allies finally, you know, for D-Day, when the Allies, Allies arrive in France. And so once they start um, freeing up areas of France, then the whole resistance network can also start working with the weapons that they've received to start um, freeing areas of France almost all at the same time. Um, so, yeah, the work she did was absolutely incredible. Um, and there's so much we we can talk about this. And I know we're going to go deeper into the whole aspect of when she was a radio operator as well, when we're going to be drilling Tom about this. Uh, but before we do, I um, as, a, as a fan myself of your work, I, I wanted to ask you, um, how did you come across Virginia Hall? Well, um, I, a previous book I wrote about Clementine Churchill and Churchill's wife, and it astonished me how little we knew about what she contributed to the war effort, which was an enormous amount. And after researching that and writing that book, I realised that there must be a lot more... You know, we used to think we knew everything there was to know about World War II. And actually, the more I dig into it, the more I realise there's still so much to learn and to understand and to kind of... Yeah, glean about about that war. So I, I knew there were other stories. I was always interested in intelligence. My own father was in the intelligence world for a, a while when I was growing up and was always very secretive about it. And I so I thought, oh, well, you know, sounds glamorous. Why is he not telling us? Um, but uh, so, so that kind of sparked my interest. And so I started looking at the SOE. Uh, a lot of people looked at it before. Of course, but what intrigued me was that here was an American woman that everyone said had done amazing things, but then there was actually really very little detail as to what those amazing things were and who she was. Now, I soon discovered why there was so little, because it, it was, you know, three and a half years of detective work and a few lucky breaks that meant that I could kind of stitch a story together. I and mean, she had countless different code names and di different disguises. She operated out of various different cities. So, you know, it was kind of real um, labor of love to kind of try and put all these pieces together. I had a big map of France on my sitting room wall and stickers on it and I would kind of try and join up dates and things that I could kind of piece together. But eventually, like I say, through pieces of luck and the help of an intelligence officer here in London and over in Washington, a former one of the CIA, and some lucky breaks in the Resistance Museum Library in Lyon where I discovered this absolute treasure trove of uh, papers that had long since been forgotten with about that much dust on them. Um, 
And I was able to put all this together, but I was, you know, it, it, took, it, it took a lot of determination and luck. Um, and in, in the end, I think, I mean, I would say this wouldn't die, but I think in a way it's what, definitely one of, if not the most interesting story about SOE, because so many of those other very, very brave women who were recruited and went into France didn't survive. Um, didn't survive long enough to do the astonishing things I'm sure that they were capable of. They were often given very, very perilous jobs. Virginia, through a combination of luck, sure, but also tremendous skill, somehow managed to survive long enough to do great, great things. And that's what really kind of captured me, that this wasn't a tragic story in the end. It was a story of unbelievable achievement and courage and sort of inspirational behavior so I I was completely hooked the more I found out the more you know I was entranced by it um sorry if I may come in just a moment um one of the things I found quite compelling in your book was along with Virginia's extraordinary story is how you give the uh, you, you convey the absolute sense of terror that living in under Nazi occupation and under Vichy occupation was like for people. And I I think it's very hard now for us to sort of transport ourselves into, into this, that environment and what it would have been like for people. And the the thought that the next minute could be your last, actually, It, it could really turn on a sixpence that much when you're involved in this clandestine world. And, I, I and I, I don't mind admitting I, I found it in, in all the right ways. I found it very harrowing to read some of the accounts, and that must have you must have felt that yourself, I guess, when you were also doing the research for this. Yes, I did. I mean, talking about going up to the plateau where the parachute drops came in um, quite late at night. I wanted to get that feeling of what it must have been like. It's kind of windswept quite desolate plateau in in a way, particularly at night. Um, and, and looking at the, the mountains that look like strange shaped teeth that the pilots use to um, navigate their way and then come round, make a sort of you know big turn down into the plateau and then drop their loads. And just thinking what that must have been like to be up there with, you know, 100, 200 men who don't really know you, but if this doesn't work out, how dangerous that must have been. And so one of the things that I really sort of relied on and helped me so much were these letters that I found in Lyon from some of the resistance, resistant who'd worked with her in the Loire and elsewhere, who described those feelings that night and other nights and what it was like to fight by her side. Um, and there were a couple of letters that made the sort of, you know, the hairs on the back of my neck kind of stand up. And that basically they said that it had been, I'm trying to think of the exact wording, but this is more or less what it was. Um, it had been worth being born or worth being alive just for those moments with Virginia Hall. So despite the terror, there was an excitement and a weird sort of happiness that finally they were doing something. They had the means to do something. So combining all of those emotions, I was trying to put myself 
into their shoes and trying to understand it. So from letters, but also uh, I did speak to um, some special forces people who'd been, who in more recent times have been in the field, just because, tell me what it's like, I said to them, just just give me that impression. What, what, what is it like? And so I try, and try to absorb that and to try and understand these these feelings. But, you know, I, I just read lots and lots and lots and lots of firsthand accounts to try and, you know, put myself into um, those people's shoes and just to know that you or anyone you know could be captured at any moment. And, and really no one should be expected to hold out for more than 48 hours at the very most under torture. So you can't even tell people on the same side as you about anything because, of course, if they're captured, they may well totally unintentionally give you away. So I think the loneliness of this work is also astonishing. And one of the things that you know stuck out in my mind is that one of the agents had dinner with a mirror because at least you could trust your own reflection. And I think uh, who amongst us could possibly deal with this? How did she deal with it? She didn't take to drink or sleeping around like a lot of the agents did because, you know, how do you deal with that constant fear? Um, and, you know, I, I often ask myself, and I think, again, it goes back to her her accident in a sense because it had made her so self-reliant that she was able to be a part in a way that most of us who expect and are, are, are used to, accustomed to a more sociable life, perhaps we couldn't give that up, whereas she was able to. So there are all sorts of emotions and things coming in here. And I, I really tried to understand them as, as well as I could. I think it sort of underscores that reality with war that you have people doing the most extraordinary things, both for good and for evil. I mean, I was struck in the book that on the one side, you've got Virginia and you've got her comrades who are utterly selfless and knowing each moment could be their last, but they do it anyway. And then you've got on the other side, you've got Klaus Barbie, who is the sort of the sum total of absolute evil. You know, it's the only way I could describe him and his cohorts is, is that way. And here they are on, on, on completely opposite sides of the spectrum, but reacting in their own, in the same in their own way, rather, to the same historical situation, which is the war. It's extraordinary. It is, and it, it makes you ask, you know, questions about you, yourself, doesn't it? Um, and how what, how would all of us react in in those circumstances? How brave would we be? Would we be the person who I understand completely, who thought, I'll keep my head down and just make sure that my family is safe? Or would we be that person who says to Virginia, I'll help you. I don't know. I don't think any of us knows for sure which one we would be. And we never know until we're in that situation how we're going to react. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, 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 it makes sense now that I hear you um, talk about how you researched a book and that you read those letters because I think you – you did do a great job, as Tom was saying, um, to give this sense, to give this the, the atmosphere, what it was like to be there. And you also do describe in some points of the book, um, now I hope I'm not mistaken, but I think, well, I mean, 
a few of the people she worked with were actually ca captured and tortured. Some were actually killed. But I think it was the, the twins that were captured at some point and tortured at length, did not give anything away. But you do, it's just one paragraph. You don't even go into that much detail about what they went through. You only just about mention how they came out of the of that that torture and and it's yeah as you said it makes your your the hair in your neck stand up because you think they didn't give anything and one of them if i remember correctly came out with a, a, an eye almost hanging out of his head it was incredible i mean you're right in the sense that you know i don't go into great detail about what happens next partly because we don't know all the details, uh, everything that we do know pretty much do say, but also because that also reflects what happened to those people later on. So uh, after the war, a, a lot of the people who'd been bravest found themselves with nothing, um, certainly no support. You know, we didn't have the kind of support that we have now. Uh, and their lives became very difficult. So these very, very courageous people who'd, who'd put everything on the line to help all of us were never really rewarded for what they did. And I mean, there's a line in the book where I say, you know, valor does not reap the dividends it should. And I, I think that's really, really true. So I think a lot of the, the French people on the ground who helped and put everything on the line, some of them were killed, some of them came back from the camps very much reduced figures, um, were never really helped. And some of them actually had a really tough time because the French government said, you were working for a foreign power, i.e. the Brits or the Americans, and we don't like that. So some, some of them were actually punished for doing this work. And I think I, I find this a, a very shocking thing. I remember De Dennis Rake, who's one of the other... Uh, agents who works with Virginia off and on and um, off the wall, he could not find any employment because he wasn't prepared to talk about what he did during the war. So people thought he was a bit shady. Um, and in the end, he becomes a Hollywood actor's butler because that's the only work that he can he can get. Um, so I think we one of the things that I'd like sort of somehow to change is that we recognize people's courage and give them the support that they need after going into unbelievably dangerous and um, difficult circumstances on, on our behalf. Because I, I don't think that always happens even now. Well, in fact, it probably rarely happens even now. Definitely. And I think what's even more shocking almost more shocking or just the same but it doesn't matter but it's the fact that you also talk about this in the book when you say it. so one of the well this close barbie of course but one of the nemesis of virginia is also um alesh i can't remember if that's how you pronounce it but um this man who infiltrates the resistance by saying that he's a priest that he's helping and he he was a terrible traitor he was also very evil, as Tom was saying before. And in the aftermath of the World War, well, we, we very quickly end up in the, in the Cold War. And as you say in the end of the book, some of those people who were enemies end up being used 
um, to infiltrate in the Cold War and, and help the effort. So what it must have felt to have fought these people for years because they were doing barbaric or contributed to barbaric acts and then see them being used for good during the Cold War. It must have been terrible. I think that's right. I mean, it's, it's difficult to imagine how one might react to something like that. Um uh, my own father fought in the war and was very badly injured, came back, his his wife had run off with a, an American soldier, so I don't think that helped, so remarried, who was my mum, was a lot younger than him. Um, but, you know, I, I grew up, with, he had a permanent headache from 1943 onwards, he had shrapnel in his head, we couldn't go through... Um, airports without all the alarms going off. He had to have a special letter. He had double vision in one eye. I mean, all of these things go on in life, which we also forget. They go on for decades. When driving along in a car, if a stone hit the windscreen, it was a loud, unexpected noise. He would tense like that. And, you know, all through my childhood, that's that's how it was. But interestingly, we always went on holiday in France and there was a German family who came every year and they were next to us. And every year, my dad and the German guy, about the same age, would go and shake hands. As a little girl, I thought this was, I couldn't understand it at all. And my mother used to say, he looks SS to me. He had those kind of Prussian eyes. I think he had been SS. My dad said he couldn't enjoy the holiday unless he got that out of the way. So it was, it was a kind of, it was something he had to do before he could then relax so I'm guessing, I'm imagining that I think people had to find their own way of dealing with this stuff. Um, and some found ways that were more effective than others. I think Virginia herself found it difficult. I think her way of dealing with it was trying to throw herself into her work at the CIA, not always successfully because they didn't really understand or appreciate her. But I think that you ha you either had to throw yourself into something or you simply wouldn't survive because I think the, the enormity of what happened then was difficult to process. Yeah, I mean, people didn't talk about post-traumatic stress disorder in the immediate aftermath of the war like they do today. And I think also for my own grandparents, there was a culture that you just didn't discuss it. You know, they they they'd all served, they'd all been in the military, but we never really knew what their story was. And it was certainly not something that was volunteered. And I think I always get the feeling it was a combination of on one hand, their way of processing it. But on the other hand, this certainly, I think with the Brits, it's perhaps a bit of a national cliche, but we have this thing, don't we, of not talking up what we do, or well, it's not necessarily not talking up, but a fear of that we might be seen to be talking up something that we've done um, in the war or whatever it might be. We can be, I think, sometimes the people quite taciturn. And, but the flip side of that is then you risk losing these stories forever. And um, that must have happened, I think, to, to thousands, not millions of people who came back. But I think the other thing it underscores what you're saying just now, Sonia, is that every war that happens, the end is always messy. There's never a really a conclusion. And you know, sadly, that's something Ukraine will probably have to face at some point, regardless of how the conflict ends. But there's never a sort of satisfactory line that's drawn. And 
everybody vaguely gets what they want and it, you know, compromise is made and everyone sort of, I don't want to sound like I'm being flippant by saying everybody walks away happy, but there's always loose ends and there's always a mess at the end of the war, which is one of great, it's great tragedies, I think. I, I mean, I, I guess by writing this book and doing this research, I came to realise just how messy war is while it's going on too, and that the resistance itself, you had these heroic people, just mind-blowingly heroic and brave, selfless, but you also had people who used the resistance for their own purposes, if they wanted to advance themselves politically or, you know, whatever it was. And so the resistance itself was not a pure thing, you know, that it was messy and factional and there was infighting um, and all the rest of it. I mean, ultimately, you know, it what it did, what it achieved was, was a noble thing, but that doesn't mean to say that everyone within it was noble because they certainly weren't. So, and, and just like, you know, the SOE people, some, some of them were also really not noble at all. So I think, yeah, I mean, war definitely brings the best out of some people, but it also brings the worst out of some people, even some of those people who are on the right side, if you like. And then, like you say, at the end, and I think, you know, Virginia makes me think about Ukraine a lot because... Will we one day hear about the heroes? There will be Virginias, you know, doing different things in Ukraine right now as we speak. Will, will we find out about them? I, you know, that's really why I wanted to write this book because I was so determined that we we know about Virginia Hall and to, before it's all too late and all those bits of paper disappear and and we still have some links left, but they will become looser in a week of time. And, and it, it felt like something I should do kind of now. And I'm certainly glad you did because I learned a lot and I'm terrible with history, honestly. Uh, but this book also helped me very much know certain things about the history of my own country that I wasn't necessarily remembering or aware of either or both. I'm not sure. Um, and well, we could, talk about this for hours I know but I think I want to give you a small break Sonia and I think it's time to drill Tom because um what one of the things that Sonia did and it, it, you know um sorry one of the things that Virginia did uh is a bit like what you were saying Sonia is she it brought so many good things out of her and she pushed herself to the limit and one of the things she did is when she came back um, as part of the OSS of the spy, the American spy network, is that she started working as a radio operator. Now, at the time, that was a very, well, most of those roles were incredibly important, but this one was particularly important because she was keeping London updated with what was going on in France. She was organizing these, these drops of the weapons. Um, so, Tom, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about how it worked at the time, like what she was using and perhaps how the Germans were also trying to intercept those messages to try and, you know, foil any attempt of the resistance? Sure. I mean, radio was still a relatively young science back in the Second World War. Uh, World War II is the first conflict really where radio is used en masse and where radio is deployed with um, not quite the individual soldier in the field, but where you have armies using radio networks regularly and air forces, navies using them as well. And 
as you said, Sonia, in your book, these agents who are dispatched behind enemy lines and have radios to communicate back with with London. Um, one thing I heard about the um, shortwave sets that, that they were using, which is also confusingly known as high frequency these days, um, but was known as shortwave back in the day, was that they, they were very tricky things to use. Um, and the, the technology itself was quite temperamental. So it could be prone to breaking down. So one thing I understand is you, you not only need to be able to use the radio, which was could be capricious, but you'd also need to know how to repair it and and know its foibles, if you like. And you can imagine if you're in the hayloft of a French farmhouse and the radio stops working and you've only got certain tools or certain bits and pieces around you, that's going to become potentially quite challenging to repair. Um, one of the reasons why high frequency radio was very temperamental was because you you're actually bouncing the transmissions off a section of the atmosphere called the ionosphere, which is a, a layer of the atmosphere several kilometers above us. I mean, a huge stretch of the atmosphere, and the radio some radio waves can't get through that. So they bounce off it like a trampoline or like a, a snooker ball does when it's it's going across the table. It hits a cushion, it bounces off at an angle. So so that's what you're doing with the radio wave. So you, you need to know all of the ways to do that. And it's what the same technology that radio amateurs use or radio hams use today. And they'll often tell you it's not really a science, it's an art form. And I think that would have been as, even more true in Virginia's day compared to now. Uh, so very, very challenging equipment to use and technology to use. And then to have to do that covertly, I think, just makes the mind boggle, really. Well, I'll just say, and so you're not only transmitting, and Tom, fantastic description there of all the issues you're having to think of, but you're also um, transmitting in code on, on top of everything else and knowing that the longer you transmit, so if you've got the problems that you're talking about, it's going to take you longer to transmit, which means that you're more of a sitting duck for the Germans to intercept your signals and come and arrest you. So, um, you know, you, you didn't have much time to get your message um, transmitted over to London. Um, so I think the, the pressures on you were intense. But I, I'd love to know, I remember when I was researching this, that people talked about having a signature or fist, I think they sometimes called it, where every agent who used a, a, a radio had a particular way of typing out the, the messages and that you could tell from the at the receiving station if you were you know, pretty highly trained, you could tell which agent was which. And I, I'm just interested as to you know, where we are now in terms of communications and how far things have come on and whether you still have that kind of signature today. It's a really good point. I'm, I'm really pleased you brought that up, actually, Sonia, because I'm, I'm really fascinated by this idea with Morse signatures that, as you say, when people are using Morse code and they're tapping out their messages, that everybody will have their own particular style, their own feel. It's almost like your handwriting in a sense. You know, you can identify someone by their handwriting and the, the Morse signature is very similar. And what's interesting about Morse is that really after the Second World War, it, it starts to fall out of favour. Um, but there's been an uptake of it again recently. For instance, a lot of African militaries use Morse. And one of the reasons it's used is because if you can't necessarily get access to satellite communications if you think about 
the size of some of the countries in Africa, they're absolutely huge. But if you don't have access to satellite communications, the only way you have of passing a radio transmission from one place to another is to use the high frequency radios, or the high frequency communications principle, let's say, that Virginia and her comrades were using back in the Second World War. And these days, the radios are much more advanced. They're digital. They have microchips in. There's, there's been a complete revolution in how they're designed and built. But the basic principles remain the same. And one of the problems you have when you use high-frequency radio is, is the – we're talking today on – you know, we've we've got our internet link, we're using Wi-Fi, whatever it is, and we've got very nice wide band of communications we can use. We can share all of the pictures, we can hear everybody's voices very clearly. But when you're using HF high frequency, the bandwidth is very, very narrow. So if you're trying to use actually um when you're using voice communications, it's prone to be to break up and you're really taxing it to the limit. So Morse is a good convenient way of avoiding that because it's using up very little bandwidth. And that's hence the attraction for it still that you see in places like Africa and where, where it's used because it's an economy of usage. You know, you can send a lot of information using very little resources. But this idea of still being able to hear the signature of the Morse operator still very much exists. It's something I've heard about in the radio ham community as well, with people who still use Morse within that, that they can recognize, okay, that's, you know, that's Sarah or that's Bernard or whoever, or whatever their radio ham call signs might be, but there's really good operators can still discern that. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's like, like, if you're familiar with the number stations, it's one of those things that's, that's absolutely fascinating. And, um, it's an old technology, but here we are, and it's still relied on today. And of course, it was a very heavy thing to um, haul around with you as well, and um, you had to have a big suitcase, which I, and I think it was thirty pounds. I think they went down to about twenty pounds towards the end of the war, but they were still very heavy. And Virginia walking around with a suitcase with her limp, and she tried to disguise her limp by holding the suitcase that that side to try and you know suggest the reason why she was limping was a suitcase but you have to traveling around France go through any number of of stations uh there'd often be Gestapo kind of you know just around the exit from the platform at any point if they thought you were the slightest bit suspicious they could say open your suitcase and, and there's absolutely nothing to be done then I mean there's you know there's there's no hiding the fact that you've got one of these radios in there so um it was again a, a constant uh battle with your nerves <laughs> you could be picked up at, at, at any point um so that was something that she had to deal with and, and really her only her only protection was was a disguise um as a sort of trying to make herself look like a a, a french peasant as, as you know she would have put it um and she was lucky because as a child, um, the family had had a farm, so she knew something about goats and cows. So she at least could look relatively um, convincing when she was sort of shepherding a few shepherd goats, I guess you do. Um, if you're sort of looking after some goats, you have some ideas to what to do with them. Uh, I think that helped. But um, the, the radio stuff and all, and all the different ways that the Germans became very skilled. And Tom, I'm sure you know more about this than I do, but they became so skilled at intercepting signals and picking up signals. And they had vans and planes and all the rest of it trying to, to do that. And it became more and more and more dangerous to be a radio operator, as I understand it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it forming radio intercepts every single day and, and the treasure trove of classified documents that this young man in the United States leaked or is allegedly, um, want to get into legal trouble, um, allegedly leaked last week. A lot of that will have come from radio intercepts. It will just be the National Security Agency's capabilities being able to intercept a radio signal, be that a satellite signal, which is probably more likely now today than a high frequency radio signal. But the principle is still the same, either using that technology to find where someone is transmitting or alternatively to just be able to eavesdrop and listen in and to what the radio com uh, conversation is. And, and all every intelligence agency does this. You know, I'm, I'm always telling people, look, everybody spies on each other. You know, even if they're allies, I promise you that everyone's spying on each other because it's all knowledge. It's all intel. It's all information. It's all, and that's all used as the basis for decision-making. So a lot of the techniques that were on both sides that were pioneered in the wars are still being used today. They may have become more sophisticated through computerization and, and, the addition of artificial intelligence now will make make it even more sophisticated. But the basic principles are still the same. And, um, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, as they say. I mean, how much did the war accelerate that process? Was it a real kind of driver for, you know, pushing maybe towards where we are today? I mean, presumably, you know, it did everything kind of picked up pace because of the need to. Yeah, I, I would say ballpark figure in terms of sort of, signals intelligence which in includes the radio intercept and radio location and things probably 20 years of research sandwiched into five i would think you know ballpark figure i mean i think it was a i think it was an absolutely huge acceleration but also that was by the fact that you've got a huge if you think about it with the U the uk and the us and germany as well and and soviet union japan all of the belligerents they're effectively mobilizing their entire science and engineering corpus or community into the war effort so it's it's almost i suppose you can think of it in similar terms to what happened with the covid vaccinations that um you've suddenly got an emergency and so you've suddenly got a huge allocation of resources and intellect personnel everything logistics every single thing you need in order to have that outcome, because it's the only choice you've got. You've it's got to be a success. You know, failure is sort of not an option. But it does make you think, doesn't it? It, it? it sort of makes you think. Well, if you can do that for um, signals intelligence, or you can do that for a COVID vaccination, what else can you do it with? It's just a question of the will and the resources being there. And and scientific innovation, I think, always accelerates in war. And World War II is a really good illustration of that. I always feel. So the other interesting thing about war and what it did was obviously it, it was a big um, move towards emancipation of women. I mean, that went into reverse after the war in the 1950s, very sort of conservative um, decade as, as a reaction. But um, Virginia, who'd been turned down all those times by the State Department, suddenly is someone who's doing really, really important stuff because of the urgency and emergency. So she, she gets her chance, ironically, because of war, because there was this incredible need. So again, you think about, well, funny enough, war 
made people use talents wherever they found those talents and that in peacetime that wasn't the case and, and again you asked that same question which I think is a really interesting one about COVID and the vaccinations and things but are we not using the talents that are out there now you know are, are we not actually looking in the right places for those talents because you know some of the bravest people in SOE if they walk down the street past you you wouldn't necessarily think oh yeah they, there's that person would definitely be brave or, or ingenious or whatever um but it didn't matter because everything was so desperate that if you were good at something you just got to do it often so it's interesting kind of how war can have these sort of rather perverse good consequences even if only temporarily and that you you do see people getting their chance and also I think it's really interesting you know that more recently I remember when I was researching the book that the head of MI6 I think it was said you know okay so who do we look for to join us now is it the James Bond type no absolutely not is the absolute reverse of James Bond so it's someone who has had to struggle to get on in life, who has had to be ingenious or resourceful. Um, those are the people that we want to recruit now. And it just seems to have taken an awfully long time to get to that point. Um, and you know, so now they, they seek out the neurodiverse because these are people who have this ability to think outside conventional lines, think outside the box, to use a, a cliche, and that, again, another group of people whose talents and skills and contribution have perhaps been ignored and that we can now look at, um, you know, with, with fresh eyes, hopefully. I and mean, I'm not, you know, we're certainly not in any kind of, uh, you know, perfect place on this, but maybe small steps are, are, are being made and and certainly as a result of Virginia's work I think and the people that she dealt with people who knew about her and the problem was that not many people did know about her they said wow you know a woman is doing all this stuff and some of the secret signals I saw about the work that she was doing blowing up bridges and all this kind of thing uh, a few of them referred to her as he because they simply couldn't believe that the person doing this stuff was a woman, it just simply wasn't possible. Um, and it took a while for them to accept that, that she was. So you know, there's lots of things I think that we can reflect on and that maybe we can you know, work on to help us improve now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why both Tom and I really, really enjoyed your book because as you said, you know, war was the necessity and uh, she had been trying so hard to get into the diplomatic um, and foreign affair world and hadn't managed and war created the opportunity, but she really fought for it. She really, really did. I mean, when she left, no one gave her a chance in the field and yet she succeeded. So I think books like A Woman of No Importance are absolutely crucial because they also remind people very much like you were saying, you know, she was an amputee and yet, you know, she managed to cross a mountain with like meters of snow despite her leg killing her. Um, it reminds people that sometimes opportunities knock at your door and sometimes you just have to go and knock at opportunities door instead. So I, again, I thought, this was a great book, really thought-provoking as this conversation has shown, and I know that we could go on for a while, but unfortunately for today, we're just going to have to stop here. 
But before we do, Sonia, I wanted to ask you one last question. Is there anything from all the research that you've done, all the detective work that you've done, uh, that you couldn't put in a book, but you would like to share today before we say goodbye? Well, there was one story I found out about after the book was published, which I wish I'd known about before, but it was when um, she was uh, operating in the field and she was driving a, a truck full of guns to the resistance. And she'd covered these guns with um, a few pallets of eggs that she picked up from a farm. But that, that's all that was. So it was just one layer of little things of eggs. And she was driving down this, this road and then um, a German army unit flags her down because their truck has broken down and they want to lift into the next town to seek assistance. And so she has to um, invite them to up into the cab of the lorry <laughs> uh, while she's driving along, um, knowing that the only, you know, the only thing between catastrophe and uh, getting out of this alive is, is a few eggs. And um, <laughs> I just sort of, I'd love to know what they talked about as she was sort of driving along. You know, what, what was she saying to them or or did she not speak? Because, you know, her French accent was pretty dodgy. It was pretty, pretty American. So I, I just... I just love to have been a fly inside that cab and just kind of known what that was like. But I think that just gives you a flavor of how, you know, narrow the line always was between survival and catastrophe. In this case, a few eggs. That's it. In this case, she's literally walking on eggshells. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, again, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Sonia. Thank you so much for accepting the invitation. And thank you, Tom, also for all the insights on electronic warfare as usual. And um, I hope you enjoyed yourselves. I certainly did. And um, I look forward to being able to interview you on the next book. Well, thank you very much, and Tom, too. It was, it was great to talk to you. And I've learned a great deal from you. So thank you. And thanks very much for the invitation. 